0: The material in this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should not rely on this information to make any medical-related decisions. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a doctor-patient relationship, and nothing should be taken as specific medical advice for any given person. I hope you enjoy Mark Medicine. Hey, Mark. I have a question. Okay. How many times do you think I've asked you that question?
1: Do numbers go that high?
0: I doubt it. And from that concept, the idea of Marked Medicine was born with Dr. Mark Brulte.
1: And with Amanda Brulte, my favorite nurse practitioner.
0: And you're now listening to Marked Medicine. The holidays
1: are upon us, Amanda.
0: They are. They are. Actually, Christmas is just a couple of days away, and I actually have some last-minute shopping to finish up.
1: Um, I'm sure you do. Well, the today's episode is kind of fun for me. It's a very serious and important topic. Um, we're going to talk about heart attacks.
0: We are. We are going to talk about heart attacks. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk about heart attacks today is because I actually have a question. Okay. See what I did there? <laughs> um, so I've always heard and I've read, but I've never really done any research to find out if it's true that... Heart attacks most commonly occur throughout the holidays and the holiday season. And so I was just curious.
1: Well, that is true. It's not an old wives tale. Actually, the number one day for heart attacks is December 25th, Christmas Day. Number two is December 26th, and number three is January 1st. And there is a 5% increase from baseline rate for heart attacks from Thanksgiving to New Year's. So it's all true. Everything you've heard is true about that.
0: Do we know why?
1: Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. It could just be stress. It's a stressful time of year, even though it's fun. People are getting together, families and all that stuff. It can be stressful. Uh, People are, their sleep cycles are disrupted. They have large meals and they're drinking and staying awake late and being dehydrated. There's always been speculation about the cold time of year and the climate causing vasoconstriction. The blood vessels constrict down because it's cold. You're running a little dehydrated because of the things we just talked about, and that can lead to increased clotting in the arteries. Oddly though, even in warm climates, there's an increased rate of heart attack during that time of year. So it's not purely the climate in, in the wintertime.
0: Wait, so so hang on, dehydration can cause an increase.
1: Yes, it makes the blood viscosity, the thickness of the blood and the stickiness of the platelets and, and things like that co- that cause clotting um, can cause increased clotting, which is the cause of a heart attack, which is maybe something I need to kind of explain.
0: Well, yeah, I guess I was just trying to make that work in my brain, actually, for a second. So I'm assuming that, that could that's true as well for the summertime. I mean, dehydration is dehydration or am i wrong it,
1: it is that's why that's why i said there's a lot of speculation about the cause but nobody really a hundred percent knows
0: well isn't there just an increase in heart attacks in the winter months
1: yes and that's in general right correct but particularly in that time of year but it but i do think we need to talk about what is a heart attack and um you know th- And to do that, I've got to kind of teach the anatomy a little bit. Your heart is nothing more than a a pump. It just sits there and pumps blood through your body. The right side of your heart pumps blood through the lungs, and the left side of your heart pumps blood through your body. And it's just a muscular pump. But what keeps that pump alive and what makes it work are three arteries that supply blood to the heart muscle, which is the engine of the pump. There's one in the front called the LAD, the Left Anterior Descending. Commonly called the widow maker. People call it that because it's the biggest artery supplying the most amount of muscle. There's one on the left called the left circumflex, and there's one on the right called the right coronary artery. Those three arteries are what keep the heart muscle alive. Okay. And about six out of seven people, about 85% of people, the right or what we call right dominant. The, the right coronary artery is more important than the left circumflex. artery. that's not really important except that a lot of heart attacks happen in that right coronary artery and in the LAD, the Widowmaker. So what we're talking about when we say a heart attack is an acute or a sudden occlusion or a a blockage in one of those arteries. And so when that blockage occurs, it's just like a a garden hose, a water hose. The water can't flow through the garden hose. If you block it up, the same thing. If there's a blockage in one of those heart arteries, the blood, blood can't flow through that artery to get to the heart muscle to carry oxygen to the heart muscle to keep it alive. And so when that tissue is starved of oxygen, it begins to hurt. And That's the pain you feel with a heart attack. So when we say a heart attack, I'm not talking about heart failure. I'm not talking about heart rhythm problems, though all heart failure and heart rhythm problems can occur secondary to a heart attack because of a heart attack. What I'm talking about is the crushing chest pain, the shortness of breath, you know, the classic signs of a heart attack, a sudden event that brings people to the ER or call, it makes them call 911. So when we talk about heart attack, the fancy name for that is acute myocardial infarction or AMI or more commonly MI. You'll hear it called MI. That's what we say in the ER. They're having an MI. Uh, Myocardial infarction. Now, what does that mean? Myocardium means the heart muscle and infarction means tissue death. So what I mean is the heart muscle is dying because it's being starved of oxygen and starved of blood flow because of the blockage in the artery. And that blockage can occur suddenly. And that's when a sudden heart attack occurs usually the blockage occurs in an area of plaque buildup atherosclerosis hardening of the arteries and plaque buildup over time and something makes that plaque rupture and then the platelets and all the clotting things that happen in our blood vessels happen and boom it's closed off and somebody has a heart attack and that's when i get involved right
0: well a couple of questions did come to mind while you were explaining all of that, but the first that I want to ask is you talked a little bit about the classic signs and symptoms of a heart attack, but will you talk a little bit more about the classic signs and symptoms so that everyone will know?
1: Yes. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, the, class, the, the, the handful of symptoms that everybody's aware of is chest pain, shortness of breath, sweating, nausea, vomiting. That pain can radiate down the arm, up the neck, to the jaw, even to the ear. It can go through to the back and the shoulders um those are the big ones uh, but there's a lot of other signs and symptoms you can just feel weak you can have low blood pressure you can pass out or nearly pass out when you go to stand up or sit up you can have just back pain and shortness of breath without you know classic chest pain if it's a, if it's a blockage that's impacting the bottom part of the heart it's not uncommon to have upper abdominal pain people think they're having indigestion and heartburn um it, particularly in diabetics or the elderly, and females, women, they can have very atypical symptoms and not have the classic elephant sitting on the chest. You know, They can have just really nothing, just say, I just don't feel good. I I can't tell you the number of times I've been in the ER, people say, I don't feel good. And I go, okay, can we dig a little deeper? And you try and just, I don't know, doc, just three or four hours ago, I just started feeling bad. And so you go, uh, you know, you look at them, they're 65, they're 70, they've got other diseases. You just start running risk factors and and potential diagnoses through your brain and you're just going, well, you know, just start kind of shotgun approach this and see what we got. Boom, you get an EKG. They're having an MI.
0: Right. Well, if you can't think of the answer to this question right now, it's really okay. So don't like stress out and have a heart attack <laughs> okay. or anything. But can you think of the most strange presentation that you've ever seen in the ER of an acute MI?
1: Well, I mean, I've treated a lot of acute heart attacks. I mean, I've seen people just show up, everything from, it's like opening the cardiology textbook or the internal medicine textbook and you're reading A, B, C, D, E, classic signs and symptoms to literally just people saying, I don't feel good. I've had people just pass out, you know, just, I don't know what happened. I passed out. How do you feel now? Great. Can I go home? No, you can't go home. You passed out and you were totally fine. You know, I mean, we have to figure out what happened, you know.
0: Is there kind of a general answer for at what age should someone say, I need to actually be seen if they start randomly passing out? Because, for example, if you have a small child that passes out, I mean, sure, we all know that a pediatrician may rule out cardiac issues and that's a whole nother topic, but I'm talking about adults, adult medicine. Adults don't just walk around passing out.
1: No, and passing out may—the reason somebody would pass out from a heart attack is because the blockage of the artery causes a a rhythm problem with the heart. It either slows down too much or speeds up too much. The heart stops pumping blood to the brain, and they have a passing out spell. The fancy name for that is syncope, okay? And so that's why—now, that rhythm problem doesn't have to persist. It may self-correct, and that would be why they wake up. So generally, when you're talking about coronary disease, age 45 and up for men and age 55 and up for women are the riskiest times. Now, there are things that can impact that. Um, a heavy smoker, a very, very strong family history. Um, people with diabetes and some of the other classic risk factors can bump those numbers down. And and genetics is huge. Somebody tells me their daddy had an MI at 38 and they're 32, and they're in with chest pain, I promise you, I'm I'm thinking like I'm thinking about a 65-year-old.
0: Absolutely, and can you talk just a little bit about, I know that there have been, it's very common, I think, at least anyway, for single car accidents to occur sometimes, and it's sometimes thought of as being caused by maybe somebody having a cardiac, a medical event, or whatever.
1: Yeah, it's very analogous to I see it all the time, uh, and talking about adults uh, pre- predominantly here, people say, I fell, and you get to talk to them, well, did you really fall, you know, just a trip and fall, a mechanical event, an accidental event, you tripped over a curb or whatever, or did you pass out and fall? Well, it's the same thing. You're driving a car, they brought in, EMS is calling, they're on the radio, they, I've got a car wreck coming in, they're talking about the damage to the vehicle, they're talking about unrestrained and there's this arm injury and whatnot and the person gets there and you go, what happened? I don't know. Well, all of a sudden, it wasn't a simple car wreck. They had a medical event that led to the car wreck. They passed out maybe, and that could be any number of things. Low sugar, it could be they have a history of vasovagal syncope, which is just feigning spells or something like an MI, something like a heart attack that caused a rhythm problem.
0: So it seems like what I'm hearing is, always keep it in the back of your mind you know if somebody fell may not have been just a simple fall kind of dig into it same with accidents car accidents
1: yes i mean the remember the the top three reasons people die in the united states of america is heart attacks, strokes and cancer not necessarily in that order heart attacks always number one but strokes and cancer can flip-flop between number two and three two of those three causes are vascular disease you know, blockages in blood vessels. It's, we're talking about heart attacks, particularly blockages in the arteries going to the heart. But same thing, blockages in the arteries going to the brain causes a stroke. Essentially the same process, just different body parts. So, yes, with adult medicine, if, if you're worrying about vascular events, you're worrying about the predominant killer of adult Americans. So, yes, always keep that in the back of your mind. Again, the differential diagnosis.
0: Right. And then one other thing you said earlier, and I may not word this right, but I believe you said, you know, an acute MI is when you have kind of a rapid clotting or blockage or whatever of, of an artery or however you worded that. I'm not sure you can do it much more eloquent than I can, but there are some things that go on in a person's anatomy prior to that happening. It's not just like one day you're all the way healthy and all of your blood vessels are totally healthy and then, bam, you have that rapid clotting. Am I right or am I wrong?
1: Generally, you are correct. If you, Interestingly, they've done um, studies, uh, autopsy studies on young people, very young people. I, I can't remember exactly when the studies were done, but I read one a long time ago, some trauma victims in Africa. They actually did limited autopsies on some of our Vietnam um soldiers that were killed in the war. And they would actually do coronary artery dissections on these on these deceased people. And the earliest stages of atherosclerosis, what we're talking about, blockages in the arteries, start occurring at age 19 in American men. And the same the, the same thing was confirmed in the African uh, trauma victims. These were people that died of trauma of all ages. And I, I think it was six or seven hundred people, and so it's a process. Atherosclerosis is a process that decu- that occurs over a number of years. Usually, there's a lot of risk factors that can that go into the causation of that.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the risk factors, if you don't mind. What are some of the risk factors of coronary artery disease? Well,
1: if you're a, a male being over age forty-five, if you're a female being over age fifty-five. Genetics and family history is so just giant.
0: kind of across the board if
1: if you live long enough and there's enough trips around the sun you're eventually you will get atherosclerosis, okay some people are going to get it in their nineties, some people are going to get it in their thirties you know it's just it's, we don't live forever and so um but age is a huge one, and genetics is another huge one family history smoking smoking and tobacco use is a Easily avoidable risk factor. You got to quit smoking. Smoking marijuana is actually a, a risk
0: factor. What about secondhand smoke?
1: Secondhand smoke is a risk factor.
0: Okay, do we know okay. how early? I know you just said 19, but if you have a child that is exposed to secondhand smoke, and I don't mean every now and then, someone that is exposed to secondhand smoke on a daily basis, does atherosclerosis?
1: It is a risk factor. Now, the specifics of it, is it childhood secondhand smoke exposure or is it as an adult you have secondhand smoke exposure with other risk factors? I don't know the answer to that. I, I would have to look into that and see if studies have been on all that. And either way it goes, it's been. not good. Right, <laughs> but there's also hypertension, uh, elevated blood pressure that's chronic, uh, high cholesterol of either triglycerides or, or cholesterol, what we call hyperlipidemia, diabetes, obesity with a BMI above 30, these are all risk factors. Uh, what we call the metabolic syndrome, where you have central obesity and high sugar, um, high cholesterol, uh, high blood pressure. That metabolic syndrome leads to atherosclerosis. Uh, physical inactivity, poor diet. You know, these are the main risk factors that people talk about. And a lot of those are modifiable, but a lot of them are not. You can't control your age. I mean it, you can't control your genetics. I mean, you can control your weight and activity level. You can control whether you smoke or not.
0: Right. And I would like to ask you some questions in a few minutes about diet, especially with the holidays being upon us. But before we do that, can we talk just a little bit about how you diagnose a heart attack? You know, I come into the ER, I'm having chest pain. What can I expect? Well, well you know what? If you don't mind, let me, let me back it up a step. Again, since we're in the time of year when heart attacks are most likely to occur, what are the symptoms that, like, how can I know that I should go to the ER for a possible MI?
1: Well, s- significant severe chest pain that's new, different, in a person that doesn't know they have coronary disease and doesn't have what we call stable angina, you know, that needs to be seen. I mean, shortness of breath, significant shortness of breath, passing out spells, the the things that we talked about earlier. I mean, if these are new symptoms for you, I mean, that's what the ER is designed for. That's what you, you know, you need to When you say shortness
0: of breath, do you mean like if they're up, you know, um, tracking up and down the stairs, you know, getting gifts and everything, and I'm having shortness of breath during that time that's worse than usual or just... Sitting still, shortness of breath. Both.
1: Mm-hmm. You're talking about exertional dyspnea, which is a fancy word for shortness of breath, or non, or uh, dyspnea at rest. I, either can be.
0: Just anything that's different than normal. Correct.
1: And so that's, you know, you should go to the ER and get that checked out.
0: What about the stomach pain? I heard you mention abdominal pain has been a risk factor. What are some abdominal pain symptoms that should make people say, I need to go to the ER. This could really be my heart.
1: Well, and again, you may need to go to the ER just for the abdominal pain in and of itself. It's not necessarily that every time I see somebody with abdominal pain, I think heart attack. I mean, I I, I at least run it through my mind, depending upon where the pain is, the age, the risk factors, etc. But You know, if you're having upper abdominal pain with associated signs and symptoms, shortness of breath, sweating, vomiting, you may need to go just for the abdominal pain. That also can be a a very serious... uh,
0: Would you say that if somebody's having abdominal pain that like they've never had before, and of course it's Christmas Day and we're with our family and, you know, it's going to be very hard to run to the hospital right now when you're in the middle of that. Let's say that they... Eat a Tums or whatever. They think, like, oh, I'm going to take a Tums. Maybe it's indigestion. I had a huge meal. If that pain is not relieved within how much time, would you say? Or if I understand, probably if it's getting worse, if we're getting symptoms on top of symptoms. So, hey, we got to finish opening presents next week or else we may not have Christmas next year. Okay, I've got to go to the ER. (laughs) But can you give any kind of a guideline on when? Somebody should say, I have to go.
1: I think the best guideline, and I hear this from people all the time, they tell me, I just knew something was different. You know, people have acid reflux. There's been a lot of studies that show taking antacids and relieving the chest pain does not mean, necessarily mean that it was GI related, such as reflux or a stomach ulcer. It can still be your heart. So I think people know intrinsically when something's wrong and you need to listen to that sixth sense about yourself if you're having significant symptoms, if you just know something's wrong, please don't for the for social sake sit there and and wait. Seek care. I mean, Cuz what's
0: the one thing I've heard you say before you're like I'm not worried about
1: Yeah, I'm not worried about this Christmas. I'm worried about the rest of your Christmases, you know. Right. And that usually you know, oftentimes it's difficult People don't want to come to the ER. People don't want to be in the hospital, even if it's Especially in their best Especially not during the holidays. Yeah, exactly. And and usually, you know, I try to talk people into doing the right thing. If the, if I know they need to be in the hospital, they need to see the cardiologist, they need further testing. Usually when I say that to the person or if the person's family's in the room, that's, that's the deal maker. They go, okay, I get it. You're right. Thanks for trying to help. We'll stay.
0: Exactly. Okay. So... A person has made, you know, that decision, I have to go to the hospital, I'm having chest pain, what happens?
1: Well, I mean, and that's a scary thing, you know. Hey, I've never been to the ER as a patient with, you know, severe chest pain. It would scare me, and I know everything
0: that's going to happen. Wait, wait just a minute. For some reason, I feel like I'm remembering (laughs) a time when I was in active labor, delivering a, a... a full grown live baby, and you were having chest pain, and you ran down to the ER and got an EKG. Yeah, but that was kind of on the side. I just, you
1: know, <laughs> probably chest pain for a different reason than a heart attack.
0: You know, we had to, we had to he had to be seen about. I mean, I was having a baby that didn't was that just was gone for a few minutes
1: just to make sure everything was okay. Okay,
0: but, but anyway, so they get to the hospital. What happens? Well,
1: you're going to get to the hospital. I mean, generally, if you're pretty sick and look pretty sick and you're having bad chest pain and this is all new, you're going to be taken seriously and you're going to be taken back and you're going to be... Well, they
0: should be taken seriously. Well, they, well
1: I, I don't mean generally. I mean, no, they I are going to be taken seriously. I know seriously.
0: you don't, but I certainly don't want anybody to be, to have that because, you know, people get that in the back of their mind too. You know, like, oh, I don't want them to think that I'm, you know, and that can kind of stop them from no, going. No, I don't... I know, I know you, you do not mean, I mean that.
1: They're going to go... And they're going to be seen, and and a lot of stuff's going to happen fast, and it and it can be scary. It can be, you know, uh, oh, I don't want to be here. You know, I know you don't want to be there, but it's best that you be there. They're going to get you in the back. They're going to start an IV. Is there
0: like a general protocol for like a certain like I should have an EKG within this much time of arriving? The guidelines or are,
1: with... are within ten minutes.
0: So and, within and... ten minutes, the patient should typically have an EKG. So if for some reason the ER is just super busy and you're having super bad chest pain, crushing chest pain, whatever, and for some reason, you know, it's like, hey, it's been over 10 minutes, you know, please don't leave. And also don't think like, oh, they just don't care about me. We don't know what's going on in the back. But it may not be a bad idea for them just to kind of go back up to triage and be like, hey, I'm having chest pain. I'm sweating. It's kind of getting worse.
1: Yeah, and they usually get them pretty quickly because most of the ERs that I've been in lately they have a curtained off area right there adjacent to triage or in the back part of triage whatever, where they actually have an EKG machine, they can do them rapidly because it is important. It's uh, interesting. The mortality, the death rate from an acute MI, uh, from an acute heart attack has been halved from 1999 to 2019. I mean, that's how good ERs and cardiologists and all that stuff have gotten it. If you get to the hospital alive, We've cut your death rate in half. That's pretty cool, and that's during the time that I've been working because I started, I finished residency in '97. It's 2023, so the bulk of my career, the system has cut the death rate in half.
0: What do you know? I actually didn't know that, and honestly, I hope that's reason enough for some people to take their own symptoms and their own instincts seriously. Yeah, they just started, knowing that, hey, if I arrive alive, my death rate. And there was a now.
1: big push. There was a big public. public service announcements and billboards and radio announcements to if you have chest pain, go to the ER. Time is muscle. You know, that's the the big catchphrase. But what's going to happen to you is you're going to get there. You're going to rapidly get an EKG. Now then, let's talk about EKGs for a second. With an acute MI, depending on what you read, up to 30% of those, almost a third can be normal on the front end in the early part of that MI. Now that seems high to me. Um, The classic teaching from years ago, was about 15%. About one out of seven EKGs is normal with an acute MI. Um, Now, that will typically change. So oftentimes, you'll be getting several EKGs in the ER as your symptoms change or if we're not finding out what's going on and it's looking more and more like this should be an MI, nothing else is panning out. Um,
0: If I may say something. So you just said something that I think maybe people need to understand. You said... If your symptoms are changing, you're gonna get a repeat EKG. Okay. If anybody's listening and you're having symptoms, please don't think to yourself, Well, I was just at my doctor's office last week and I had a normal EKG.
1: Yeah, correct. Because
0: if your symptoms are changing
1: You've got to get for you've got to relook and relook. But they're gonna they're gonna also, while after getting the EKG, they're gonna start an I V line on you, get you in the back, get you in a treatment room, hook you up to a heart monitor that's constantly monitoring your heart rhythm. They're going to sometimes have you on oxygen. They're going to be putting a, a pulse oximetry monitor to measure your oxygen level. They're going to be drawing blood to send to the lab to check for a variety of things. They'll be checking your blood counts and your chemistry panel and your kidney function test and all your, what we call heart enzyme levels. And it's it's not just enzymes, it's also heart protein levels. Particularly these days, we use the one called troponin. It's very specific. It's a protein that's only found in heart muscles. So if there is damage to heart muscle by any means, but particularly with a heart attack, uh, because when you stop the blood flow to that heart muscle, that heart muscle begins to die, remember? So as those cells are starting to die and be damaged, they start leaking the stuff that's inside the cells, and particularly this one protein called troponin. We can measure that in your bloodstream. Your troponin level will be measured every couple of hours to see if that's rising, they're going to be asking, you know, the doctor's going to come in or the nurse practitioner, whoever's seeing you primarily is going to come in and be asking you questions. They'll, And the nurses in triage and the treating nurses will also be asking you questions. You'll think like, is this Groundhog Day? Everybody's asking me the same thing, you know. But there's a reason for that because it's a time of stress. You're sick, you know. And the stories change, and maybe you forgot something with the first person that asked you. So the triage nurse is going to ask you basic questions, and the treating nurse, and then the physician or the nurse practitioner, the PA is going to come in and ask you questions. Your history, your family history, when did your symptoms start? What are your symptoms? Are you short of breath? Are you nauseated? Are you vomiting? You know, are are you passing out? Are you sweating? You know, I mean, some of these things are obvious. They're sitting there huffing and puffing, you know, but... Have you ever had any kind of cardiac or vascular events or, or has anybody in your family, did your brother, your mother, your father die of a heart attack or have a heart attack or get a bypass or get stents? You know, all these things. Have you ever had a stress test? Have you ever had a heart cath? Has this ever been looked at before? So you're just going to, it's just going to be these rapid fire machine gun questions that are a lot of them are going to be repetitive. Okay. But we're not doing that to, to browbeat you. We're doing that to compile a story about you and place you into a category, a risk category, uh, that allows me to effectively make the best decision for you. And uh, so all of that's going to happen. A lot of it happens simultaneously. And if things start coming back abnormal, you know, we'll reinform inform you of what's going on. Now, sometimes we we're talking about normal EKG. Sometimes the EKG is very abnormal, Okay. And the the type of heart attack that we're talking about here is what we call an ST elevation MI. It's a very specific way it looks on the EKG. If your EKG, unfortunately, shows that on the front end, then there will be a whole flurry of activity that occurs. If you're in a hospital that has the ability to do heart catheterizations and stents, your ER providers will immediately be calling the cardiologist on call and saying, hey, I've got this patient down here, started hurting 30 minutes ago. The first EKG shows a STEMI, which is an ST elevation MI. um, inferior leads, their blood pressures, blah, 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 you know, and I'll be giving them the story. Heart doctor will be on the phone with me saying, activate the cath lab. I'm coming right in. We're going to, you know, take them to the cath lab. And what a heart catheterization is, is they run a little catheter up through the artery, either the leg or the arm artery, you can do it either way now, and they inject a little bit of dye to see where the blockage is in one of those three arteries, okay? And then, this is the cool thing today, they can get a wire past that blockage, they can balloon open that blockage, that's called called an angioplasty, and they can deploy a stent in there, like a little tiny little chicken wire looking stent that holds the artery open and lets blood flow be reestablished to that damaged heart muscle. And most heart attacks these days can be treated, acute heart attacks can be treated with stents. Now, sometimes they get in there and there's a lot of blockage, and they just have to open up what we call the culprit artery, which is the one causing the acute heart attack. And they it or stent it, but you've got other blockages. And if you're in a, a hospital that does stents, that's great. They saved your life from that acute heart attack, but you may have to be sent to an even bigger hospital to get a heart bypass surgery done. So there can be a lot of things that happen. And it can happen very fast and it can be very confusing and very shocking and very scary to the person there. But it's it's what modern American medicine does well. These are the kinds of things that we handle well.
0: Thank goodness and absolutely. And I would I would love for us, you know, one day to to go deeper into post-MI care and have you explain what some of that looks like. But I think for the purposes of of today's um, episode, I think let's, you know, especially with the holidays obviously upon us and the statistics being what they are, I think maybe let's just keep it about just kind of, you know, MIs. And one thing that I think people do need to know is what should they do if someone is around them that is actually having an heart attack. Maybe they passed out or whatever. You know, is there anything that they can do proactively to be prepared for those types of situations?
1: Well, yes. I think there's things they can do and I think there's things they can prepare to do. I think that first and foremost, call 911. If somebody is really, really sick, call 911. I mean, it is amazing to me at how good our EMS delivery system is. We get to patients now that 20, 30, 40 years ago, couldn't get to the hospital in time to be saved. Realize that five to 8% of MIs, the the initial complaint is a cardiac arrest right there in the field. Okay. And when, so that, and when
0: you say cardiac arrest,
1: I mean, they, they die right there and their heart quits beating, and you have to start right. CPR. So that's one thing you do. Call 911 if it's necessary. Number two, learn CPR. And I don't mean, you know, mouth breathing. We're talking compression only CPR. It's very simple to do. Right. What and is
0: that song that <laughs>
1: Staying Alive, yeah. the the old BG song, right? Yeah. The disco song from the seventy, that's the rate that you're supposed to do CPR to yeah. and so you can learn- play that
0: song in your head while you're doing chest compressions right. to and make sure that you're at the proper rate.
1: And CPR is very easy to do and it can be life saving. The quicker you start CPR and keep blood circulating in a heart that has stopped beating to those other coronary arteries that are still open. That can still be a salvageable heart and, a, and you're pumping blood to the brain and a salvageable brain. And by doing the chest compressions, you are causing some degree of ventilation, air in and out of the chest and oxygenation of that blood.
0: So is it imperative to do the mouth to mouth?
1: It's the the thinking now, because there's such hesitation to do mouth to mouth because of transmissible diseases, is teach the public. Uh, everyone, hopefully everyone listening and everyone in America can learn compression-only CPR, which is safe for the person doing it, okay? And that will buy that victim time to get EMS there to to do more advanced life support. The other thing that we can do as a society is get as many AEDs, automated external defibrillators, in as many places as possible. Anywhere there's, there's collections of people, churches, schools, football games uh, stadiums wherever damar hamlin correct exactly um
0: the football player for the buffalo bills
1: as many aeds as possible even large families perhaps any these things have fallen dramatically in price as computer technology and they're foolproof you put it on it can't, You can't make it shock somebody that doesn't need to be shocked. That's right. They're amazing devices. And I,
0: I really do think that most people have probably heard of DeMar Hamlin. If not, you can Google him and you'll see the incredible story about him. But as you can see from watching his story, it is extremely imperative that you do it extremely rapidly. There is no time to think about it or talk about it. I mean, if you have an AED at your disposal and you have someone that's passed out or whatever, I mean, get it as fast as possible, right? And get the pads on them.
1: Well, I mean, specifically to tell you how dramatic of a difference CPR can make. I had a patient one time, 52 minutes of CPR. He fell out, heart attack. CPR started immediately by his family. The ambulance was literally riding by his house going somewhere else when the 911 call went in. They took over his care, brought him to the ER. Eventually, I got him resuscitated at 52 minutes. Blew him off to Saint wherever, and three weeks later he was driving. Yeah, fifty-two minutes yeah. of CPR. So
0: start compressions ASAP. But I was also referring to the past. Yes, you know, yes, because of course. Tamar Hamlin. Was but
1: sure. I, so I mean, and I know that's a very unusual case, but it's an effort worth doing. And oh, absolutely. And so the AED, call nine one one, learn CPR. That's the the big three things that the public. Those
0: are the big three things. Okay, so let's get into it just a little bit. What are some things, or you know, I know that Christmas is right around the corner, so is New Year's, but what are some things that people can do, not only between now and then, but just in general that can help prevent heart attacks?
1: Well, number one, particularly related around the holidays, is try to maintain a good sleep cycle. Um, Don't eat and drink to excess. Take your medicines. I know it's exciting families in town. There's a lot going on. You may forget to take your blood pressure medicine, forget to take your cholesterol medicine, your diabetic medication. Don't do that, okay? Um, Stay hydrated. Try to uh, pursue a moderate exercise program that hopefully you're doing all year long. Anyhow, don't start skimping on those things just because it's the special time of year Um, and you know, the the typical things, you know, maintain your weight and things like that. So, you know, just common sense measures.
0: Yeah. So are there any foods that anybody should avoid or at least eat in moderation through the holidays?
1: Well, again, it's always been it's it there's no real understanding of exactly why this increased MI rate around the holidays, but there has been the postulation of the high fat, high salt you know, high carbohydrate meals that are just oh, the so yummy good. Stuff. Yes. I mean, and is that truly causative or is it just additive? You know, I don't know. But I mean, certainly it's probably not good to excessively eat like we all like to do something like I plan to do, yes. unfortunately. But it is an interesting topic. It it is not an old wives tale. There is an increased cardiac event rate around the holidays. That's
0: so try to know your risk factors. Try to do the things that you can do to prevent it. But most importantly, go with your gut. If you feel like you're having an issue, go with your gut.
1: And I think one thing I forgot to mention is most heart attacks happen between 4 o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock in the morning. I forgot to mention that earlier. 4
0: o'clock in the morning. So about the time that Santa is
1: and that's, wrapping things yeah. up. And that's probably because that's the time of day that your cortisol levels start kicking back in and your epi, norepi levels, all the uh, and everybody's excited ad- adrenal and hormones start to wake you up and get you ready yeah. for the morning. And all those things are what we call stress hormones, right? meaning physiologic stress, and so that yeah. increases the risk.
0: And we'll link some resources for people listening where you can learn the hands, hands-only CPR, mm-hmm. is that what you called it? We'll definitely link those because like you said, um, everybody needs to know how to do that and aeds i don't know if do you know i mean is it even possible for people to have those in their homes
1: yeah you can buy them and and you know i look because when i go to the store or go to the church or go but you know almost all these places have public yeah. places have right. aeds I you know, restaurants and things yeah. like that
0: but if you're having a large family gathering it may not be a bad idea to get one so i'll let you help me find a link where some where, you know, people mm-hmm. can actually purchase one if they'd like to, to have one in their home. And um, anything else, any, any pointers that you can think of to give everybody before Just, we close?
1: We're there to help you in the ER. If you need us, you need us. And that's what we do.
0: And it doesn't matter if it's day or night or if it is Christmas Day, right? Because you guys are there. If you're there, you're there.
1: Anyone, anything, anytime.
0: Right, that's what you always say. So thank everybody so much for listening, and we hope that you all have a very Merry Christmas, and we hope this information is helpful through the holidays. We hope that you all have a wonderful Christmas break and that you don't need any of this information, but if you happen to find yourself needing this information, we hope that it's helpful. And remember that you can find us at markedmedicine.com. You can also click on the Ask Dr. Mark tab where you can submit your own questions if you have something you'd like to ask Mark or any information that you'd like to know or any topics that you'd like us to cover and remember we'll link in the show notes some resources where you can potentially purchase AEDs and where you can learn hands-only CPR and thank you all so much for joining us and we'll see you all next week.
1: One other thing, one of my dear family members that lives quite far away just had a MI and very good outcome. Everything worked perfectly. They called early. The ambulance got there quickly. The cardiac team and the ER responded quickly. And LSU doctors, you know, they did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> they did a good job. The,
0: thank goodness. Yeah. And we want every story to end that well. And so thank y'all. Yes. Thank y'all.
1: Marker.